Hi, this is the Zane Lowe Interviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'm Zane Lowe. Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Well, I am fascinating individual. A lot of people just know him as a pop star, a rap star, you know, a superstar in the music business who has shape-shifted from his love of early 90s hip-hop, which really gave birth to the origins of Black Eyed Peas, right through to becoming a massive stadium-selling act, making some of the most defining pop songs of the first decade of the 2000s, with Fergie holding down those indestructible hooks. Then taking Black Eyed Peas into the EDM world and also forging a solo career simultaneously that dialed into that energy and then flipping out the other side and finding himself on the global stage, touching all kinds of world music. Music. Well, I am shape shifts through music. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is just how dedicated he is to the future, the ideas of the future, uh, how technology can help us rather than just distract us. And most importantly, how he can bring it back to the environment in which he was raised, specifically Boyle Heights in Los Angeles, but Boyle Heights representing the idea of community, who gets access to the future and who doesn't. That is the question that Will I Am has asked himself, and he set about answering it 10 years ago when he started a foundation called I Am Angel and began investing in education, encouraging kids from Boyle Heights to listen to that voice and ultimately allow I Am Angel and the people who invest in it to provide a pathway to results. And they've achieved huge results. Will will break all that down over the course of this conversation. And the reason we're having it is because 10 years into this work, Will has decided that he wants to dedicate another 10 years toward expanding it into other communities, into other parts of America and other parts of the world. And to do that, he needs to shine a spotlight on it. And that's where we show up. Proud to be a part of it. Proud to give him an opportunity to explain exactly what he's trying to achieve and what it all means to him. And it means something very deep to him. So Will I Am, you think you know him? Well, you do, but you don't. A brilliant, thoughtful and emotional human being who is without a doubt a futurist. Enjoy the conversation right here in the interview series. happy I am that this is the first conversation I'm having in 2021. Yeah. Because if we're going to start this year, we've got to start it with positive affirmation. We've got to start it with positivity. We've got to start it with, with trying to invest in the right conversations, not in all the conversations which seem like the loudest and seem like the ones that are the most gregarious. It's not about that. It's like, where is the value? Someone who understands where the value is and has done throughout his whole life because you benefited from it, from that support, from that belief and that confidence as well I am. And you've been investing in that yourself for 10 years. Here's to 10 more years. Congratulations on this, man. This is an important moment. Let's dive right into it. The American dream. It's a phrase that means a lot to a lot of people. What does it mean to you, Will? The American dream is like you work hard, you apply yourself, and you can make all of your dreams come true. You work hard, you apply yourself, and you could get up out of that nightmare. You know, there's people that have come from, you know, Poland in the past, Ireland in the past, Iran in the past, you know, Armenia in the past, and even currently. And they, they, they were refugees of, like, war-torn countries. And they come to America, and they tell that tall tale of, like, my dad came to America with nothing. And you see those people and you're like, wow, how are you living like that? That's the American dream. But then there's people that are, that are, that are living in war-torn countries, like in ghettos in America, and, they, and it's hard for them to escape that, the way those you know, immigrants have come to America. And, and they're awesome, the folks that have contributed and, and built businesses. But the same doesn't apply for folks in the inner city, right? The way, it, for some reason, there's like, a, there's like this force field that, that keeps folks from the inner cities achieving that same American dream that many you know, immigrants have, have reached. How did it work for you? Tell us your story before we talk about 
how you're helping others tell their story. It's important, I think, for the people out there that know you as an entertainer and a performer, an entrepreneur, and as a futurist, what was the, the key moment for you that put you on your path because it wasn't going to be easy for you either? My mom, really. It's, my mom sent me to an awesome school an hour and a half outside of the ghetto that I was raised in, the projects in Boyle Heights. And I went to a, a science magnet school ever since I was seven, um, first grade. And I attended, you know, an awesome school where a kid gets 8000 to $10,000 a year for their education. And receiving that type of education and seeing what, like, success is and being around families that, you know, where their parents, like, have careers because when you're in the ghetto, you don't know what poor is because everyone else is poor. And there's, you really can't compare it. But then when you get around wealthy, not rich, when you get around wealth, you, you see the difference and the, the, the conditions of education, the classroom, the attention from teacher to student, the activities and programs. And there's a, it's, it's night and day when you see kids and their, you know, educational um, environment in, in Brentwood and Palisades versus East LA and Boyle Heights. It's two totally different worlds. And what was Boyle Heights like when you were growing up? Boyle Heights was, you know, growing up in the 80s, crack, PCP, police brutality. You know that the kids were on a path to something. You just couldn't really identify it in the 80s the way you can see it clearly now. Just the prison industrial complex, you didn't really understand that in the 80s. And now we see that. We see that trap that we were put in where, you know, there's a liquor store, check cashing place. There's uh, bad food everywhere. There's no healthy anything in our neighborhoods. And right next to those shopping malls, those little poison centers in our in our blocks there's that elementary school or junior high school or high school and you know those teachers are not getting paid to the level that really equals opportunity and a better path towards excellence kids are in juvenile hall too many of us were in and out of juvenile hall yeah those are the conditions that we have to survive in i don't say live in survive in on purpose yeah and when your mom decides that she wants you to have an opportunity that she feels you can't get in, in Boyle Heights. And she wants to put you in a place where you can absorb and benefit from her hard work and, and, and what she wants for you and, and what she sees in you, which is an incredible opportunity, even from a parent. And you get out to that place where you're, where you're able to start to see, as you said, a different side of what's possible. How does that make you feel about home? Because you've come home. When you became successful, you specifically brought I Am Angel back to Boyle Heights. You didn't just open up the world of philanthropy, which you have done in other ways, but you, you figured out a program that was very specific toward inspiring and helping kids in Boyle Heights. So I wanted, before you got to that place, was it always in you? Was, how did it make you feel knowing that every day you would leave Boyle Heights only to come back again? I love my, my neighborhood. So uh, I, I wasn't like leaving Boyle Heights like, yo, F this place. Let's get out of here. I still have like 
so much love. And every Sunday when I'm home, I just drive through my neighborhood. It's like this magnet, you know, because some of my best memories are there. My best memories are not the stadium. My best memories are not, you know, the awards and the tours. My best memories are riding my bike through the projects. My best memories are hanging out with my friends when we had nothing. And so I always will love my neighborhood. You know, my, my Mexican next door neighbors, my friends and family, my protectors, my, my guardians, when, when I would leave further outside of my mom's uh, field of view, our neighbors helped raise us. So I, I will always love that and appreciate that. And we were one of the only black families in that project. And I love it. I love how diverse the, the, the cultural richness. I, I love Boyle Heights in East LA. And when I had success, you know, every time a group has success and there's like a natural disaster, they call us to bring awareness for like tsunami relief or earthquake release or, you know, to help get a person elected. And I realized that every day there's a tsunami in Boyle Heights and communities like that. There's a tsunami of neglect, the tsunami of no opportunities, police brutality of kids in and out of juvenile hall, then jailed in prison. A tsunami of like poor investment on their education. And I was like, if I could go out to Bande Ache on in 2005, I spent my birthday there doing tsunami relief. That's when I realized I needed to come back to my neighborhood. Yeah. It's like if I could come in and, and, and pass out water and and be of service whenever something goes wrong, I should, why am I ignoring my neighborhood? So I made it like a, a life goal to provide a pathway for, for kids. That's the key word is pathway. Because I think a lot of times with in the modern idea of philanthropy, when I was growing up, at least the idea was like, you know, you'd see the calls for action on television and they're still there, you know, donate just this much per month. Right. And, and they're appealing to your idea of decency of just, of just like, just, just do this, you know, at least do this. And then you go up the scale as you get older and you work out what you believe in and what you want to give to. But a lot of the times it's really about, about giving money and then you forget and the money gets used to create infrastructure and you don't know, but you feel like your conscience is clear, right? That's, to, that's the more modern everyday approach to philanthropy. But, but like you stepping into a space like this and investing in this, you figured out the only way you were going to change the system because you talked about the system that's keeping people from achieving things was to actually inspire generationally, right? To get in there and to get kids inspired so that they would go out there and do the same thing and come back and inspire and create a new cycle and a new system. Yeah, the system really is business. People don't realize that when they're the ghetto, it's a business to keep people sick is a business for the pharmaceutical industry. And that's a very dangerous thing to say, but it's factual. Like nutrition is everything. But if you would ask a doctor right now, like how to fight high blood pressure, diabetes, and you know, high cholesterol, they're gonna give you a pill. They're not gonna say like eat better. And if you live in the neighborhood in a neighborhood that has that's riddled with like bad food, how do you eat better? Yeah. Nutritional education is super important and we don't have that in the hood and because we don't have that in the hood that is a business yeah kids that are not funded with a, a good proper education are more likely to end up in prison systems that's a business too 
prison guards to the wardens. That's a business, bro. And the, and the products they make there and getting little to nothing for their, for their work, that's business. And it's unfortunate that, you know, there's some, there's some very, very like wicked parts of capitalism that are just like inhumane. And the way you, you, you compete with that is to just change the business. And what if these kids were not on the pathway to a prison, but on a pathway to college, not to, not a pathway to college to have, you know, a diploma in debt, but a pathway to fill jobs that are unfilled and create jobs that we can't imagine right now. How do you get a kid from the hood to be in the position to create jobs that we can't imagine right now? That means you got to teach these kids skill sets, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Steam. You got to give them these skill sets right now. Yeah. And there's so many jobs that are unfilled. If you don't believe me, ask Google, Facebook, ask General Motors, ask you know Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft. And, the, and a lot of those jobs, they would like to be filled by Americans. Ask the Department of Defense and Lockheed and Martin. All right, all right? It's like a, it's a national defense urgency that we have Americans filling DOD jobs. How do you get Americans, especially from the inner city, to fill Department of Defense jobs? They need to learn robotics. Why? Because autonomy and robotics is probably the way that, you know, we're going to protect our nation in the future, if not already now. So to have a computer science degree, to have like a, you know, biology degree, bioscience degree. These kids need that in the inner city. And as technology gets more advanced and more advanced and more advanced, the people that are going to be left out of that equation, you know it's going to be inner city kids. The hood in 2040 is worse than the hood right now. The hood in 2050 is far worse than the hood right now. And if you're not learning technology right now, then like, you know, you're five-year-old, but not five-year-old is 45 35, 55 years old, struggling. Why do you want that? Now, how can you fast track them to not be struggling, but to be providing and influencing and like, you know, creating a better tomorrow? You teach them these simple skill sets that might seem hard right now. You encourage them right now to be the best scientists and engineers and mathematicians. It's super important. That's like, that's what we should be like fighting for. That should be the American dream for us to compete. Like if I were to say right now, who does America compete with? Who do we compete with? You know, the way that we competed in the 70s and the 80s or the 40s or the 20s. We were competing with people in the, in the 1800s. We were competing with France and the UK. Who is our competition right now? Where every single citizen is competing. Who is that? Right? Is, are we just competing with, for entertainment? Does everybody just want to be an influencer? Does everybody just want to be an entertainer? That's great because I came out the ghetto um, as an entertainer, but I know deep down inside that maybe the future is not that. Like if this was 1920, entertainment was not just singing. Entertainment was Nikola Tesla and Edison. Entertainment was Westinghouse, engineering and, and, and invention, not just innovation. Well, the inventions that allowed entertaining to evolve in the first place. Otherwise, it would have stayed at that, at that point. That's the whole thing, right? It's, yeah. it's all intertwined. Art and technology have always been intertwined. You talk about the things that you're passionate about, your home, entertainment, science, technology, STEAM, the arts. All of it wraps up into this kind of very futurist and I called you futurist deliberately before because I've, and I've called that to your face before a few times, you know, you really are very fascinated by what's coming next and you're unafraid to look, even if it scares you. That's one of the things I really admire about you is we've had conversations that scare me, but your eyes are wide and you're all in. When did that 
click for you? Because to inspire others with I Am Angel, you got to be inspired yourself. When did you become a futurist? When did you realize that like it was more than just entertainment? Or did that happen even as a kid? Were you always fascinated by, by what you didn't understand as a kid? I think it's just my curiosity and my passion to want to create across disciplines. And I think that started like my mom and her arts and craft, like everything was arts and craft day. My mom is a super creative and she would, we would do arts and craft, paper mache, and she really, truly encouraged us. And to the point where one day I, I, I said a wild dream, like one day, mom, I want to buy you a house. How old were you? 14, 14 years old. No, no, I'm sorry. No, no, because Apple, the app came to America when we were 14. So this had to have been like 12, 12 years old before Apple, the app came. Hmm. That's really fascinating because that, that's a time frame when you normally strive to separate yourself from the people who raised you and start to define your own identity and your own independence. And yet you're having an idea about wanting to, wanting to invest in your family's well-being at that first stage. Yeah, because I would go to school and I would see Brit and Brad's house. I would see Brandon's house. Yeah, I would see like, I would pass by Sharona's house. I'm like, wow, that's your house? He's like, yeah, my house is right around the corner off of Bundy Drive. And I would see these big houses. So, and I would ask him questions like, what did you do this summer? What did you do this summer? Oh, we went to Italy or we went to Aspen or like we went to Hawaii. They would ask me like, what did you do this summer? I was like, Played around the played around the projects like I don't know. Created some of the best memories of your life. And there was those summers, you know. I remember telling my mom, like, Ma, one day I'm gonna buy you a house. And me and my mom were talking about this a couple of days ago. I was like, Ma, do you realize that you've now lived in the house that I bought you longer than I lived in the projects? It's now like the same amount of time that you've lived in this house is the amount of time from you know a newborn at 20 when I lived in the projects and I bought her the house when I turned 24 to four years of me live, leaving the projects to then buy my mom a house and move her out of the projects. And I remember she was like, well, how much is rent? I'm like, rent, there's no rent mom. She was like, what do you mean? Well, how are you paying for this? You pay for it all. I was like, no mom, it's a mortgage. She was like, well, you know how much rent was in the projects? I was like, no, she's like $75. And it moved up to $150. Still to this day, it's 150 bucks. How are you going to afford that? And and financial literacy is not, you know, like that's why that check cashing is in the neighborhood because we're not taught to save. We're taught we're taught to get money, cash a check, spend money, and there's a liquor store for you to spend your money on right next to the check cashing place. That combination is is a is a deadly cocktail for for people in the inner city. So I I just. That was the first fearful moment where I realized like, uh uh-oh, how am I going to protect my mom now? Now I'm taking care of my mom. Now I'm taking care of not only my mom, my brother, my sisters, my uncle, my grandma. Like it's all on my back. And once I realized that I can lift that, I could lift that, then nothing became fear. I was fearless. It's like if I can, if I can carry my family up this mountain, then going into like this realm and, and, and being a part of think tanks and future sessions, futurist sessions with brands. I think one of the first brands that really like acknowledged my like creative thinking was a guy by the name of Mike Jerkovec, who then connected me to Shia Day and then Ogilvy and Young and Rubicon. Before like it was cool to work with ad agencies from 2001 
to 2000 and uh, up, to, up until now. Um, but it was that 2001 working with Shy Day, which I think was the reason why, you know, Steve and Apple even thought of Black Eyed Peas when it came to launching iPods and iTunes. Um, because we had already been working with Shy Day on other things wow. before that. But I, I just always had this like fearless, once I realized I could take care of my family yeah. and move them out the projects, that, that exodus, first it was my mom, then I was like, mom, we got to get my aunt, my uncle, my grandma, and they, we all moved out. And that was a sad day. Why? Our family was beloved in our projects. They knew my grandma and the projects, even the housing authority, since the 50s when she moved in. You got to think about how fresh the projects were in the 50s. That's like post-World War II. There's only 10, like 15 years most. The projects was a new thing. Low-income housing for veterans and their families. And my grandma, my, because my grandfather fought in the war, were one of the first folks in the projects. So my, you know, my whole, my mom was raised like migrating from the South, picking you Mississippi to Louisiana. And the one thing that I think is, was wrong with that project was the investment for education, right? That there wasn't the, you know, equal awesome education where kids from the project aimed to go to Yale, yeah. aimed to go to, you know, Harvard and Stanford and MIT. That's not what you're thinking about and dreaming about in the projects. Yeah. And that's, that was the beginning when you realized that and you started to educate yourself in a different way. That's when, that's when you realize that that's really what I am angel needed to be about was education as the, as the core of it, ultimately to put kids in a situation where they're able to benefit from it, from education. Like a natural disaster, like a hurricane or a tornado or earthquake, th those things like you can, you can't control that. You could do your, you could do your best to try to prepare for that. And to prepare for that, you need education on how to build. So engineering skills to make sure you have buildings that can with, you know, withstand earthquakes or tornadoes or tsunamis, typhoons and, and things like that. So even, even combating, you know, mother nature, you need engineering skills, science skills. If you want to solve the environment, environmental problems, like you need to be educated. If you want to solve like, you know, health problems, you need education for every single problem that you have in like the, you know, the 20, 30 millennial goals for every one of them, the core that solving all of them is education, conflict with other nations. You need political knowledge, you know, uh, foreign policy. You need edu education is the core to all of our problems. And um, that's the reason why I wanted to like equip kids from my neighborhood and other neighborhoods that reflect that with tomorrow's skill sets. Why should we have to leave the neighborhood? Why should we have to leave the neighborhood? Everyone in the ghetto's mentality is like, yo, I can't wait to get up out of here. And the moment that you want to leave the ghetto, somebody's saying, I can't wait to go in there and develop there. And we all know what gentrification means. But we are never the ones to alter our neighborhoods from like thriving to striving. Like we don't, uh, uh, striving to thriving, that's not us. That's always some foreigner coming in and be like, oh, there's so much I can do here. But if we had awesome education in our neighborhood, then kids don't have to leave the neighborhood to think about like, oh, I want to get out of this neighborhood. They could have the skill sets to change the neighborhood themselves, the condition of living, the condition of like environments. 
Because every, everybody that's from a poor neighborhood loves that neighborhood. But for some reason, we can't wait to get out the neighborhood. Why? Like a long time ago in the 80s, there was people like, I can't wait to get up out of Brooklyn. Now Brooklyn is a place people want to go to. Like I remember, I remember going to Boyle Heights. Somebody was like, yo, Will, there's a Soho house in Boyle Heights. Bro, I felt like crying. I felt like as proud as I was and happy that I was, I felt like crying. And they were like, why are you so sad? I'm like, because I tried my whole life to get up out this place. And now here is a magnet of beauty and other folks are coming to it. And the folks that are from this neighborhood can't even appreciate or experience this because it's out of their price. Yeah. They can't afford to eat here at the Soho House or even become a member here at the Soho House. That breaks my heart, right? I remember I went to go see the new Warner Brothers that looks at Boyle Heights right over that bridge, the 7th Street Bridge. I'm like, I don't know whether to cry because when I was trying to come up out of Boyle Heights, I had to go to Hollywood for the record deal. Now it's right down the street. But Boyle Heights as a community, the artists are not... They're not thinking of Boyle Heights as like a, a artist, a artist pocket. When the Mexican um, Mariachi Square is right down the road, Latin Music Central, right there in East LA, Mariachi Square is on Soto, mm. three blocks, eight blocks at the most from uh, Warner's, right there off of Seventh uh, Street. So we should be transforming our neighborhoods ourselves, folks from the community. We need to be policing our communities ourselves folks from the community and it all starts with education so what have you learned as far as education goes in the first 10 years before we talk about your commitment to the next 10 years in this song and this video and you know the donation that the pledge that you've made around american dream we're going to pivot into that in a second let's find out what you've learned how you've educated yourself through this process of of committing and investing in these futures in the last 10 years i started off with 65 kids and I remember sitting down with Lorraine Powell Jobs. We're there. And she's like, so first I asked her if she could bring college track to my neighborhood because I watched this documentary called Waiting for Superman. And it was about the worst schools in America and how America is failing in education. And one of the schools that they highlighted was a school that my mom went to, Roosevelt High School. And that was a school that I should have went to, but she sent me out to Palisades. And Brentwood. So when I when I asked Lorraine, hey, this movie is called Waiting for Superman, and it's a really messed up title because it's 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 waiting for a fictitious character to solve real problems. But your program is pretty heroic, and you're superwoman. And can I take your program to my neighborhood? She was like, Well, well, if you're serious about this, well, this is like a $10 million commitment. And 10 years at the least. Because once you start with a kid, you have to see that kid all the way through. It's an investment on every level. Yeah. So if you're in, this is what the commitment is. This is not like, you know, this is how you feel this year and who knows how you feel next year. Because it's not fair to the kids. So I was like, let's do it. And at that time when I started the program in 2008, I didn't have money like that to like, commit to $10 million in 10 years of my life. That was a scary moment. That was scarier than my mom saying, how are you going to pay for this mortgage? But because I realized that I could like go up the mountain with the family on my back and, and, and do it, that one didn't scare me. I just like, let's do it. Let's go. 
I'll figure it out. And we figured it out to the point where that site is one of the, you know, highest performing uh, college track sites. My IM college track site is the highest performing site with the most, you know, kids that graduate. We have kids going to Brown. We have kids going to Dartmouth, USC, UCLA, MIT, and uh, Carnegie Mellon is what we're reaching for next. That's great, man. What I learned was you just got to tell the kids the truth. And the truth is we've been set up. Your life has been set up for you to fail down to how they invest in your education. And because they don't invest in your education and the teachers that are teaching you, you're more likely to, one, go to prison, more likely to have like bad health issues, uh, more likely to get pregnant at an early age, um, get addicted to drugs because you're selling drugs and, and vice versa. We can alter that. Here's another path for you guys. And so when you tell the kid the truth that you're, that you're competing business to business and you're a pawn in a big game, then they're going to hop on that and perform and excel. And I've seen that with my students. Like for a kid of mine, one of my kids is like, I want to go to Brown. I love computer science. And if you would, if you would have taken his zip code and look at the statistics to, you know, the conditions of the zip code he lives in and other folks that have computer science careers, he's, he's an oddball. But boy, did he freaking like excel. And he's featured in this American Dream song. Are they all students that are singing the song with you in the video? Yeah, some of, some of the kids are part of my I Am College track. Some of the kids are part of my robotics program. So I have a robotics program at the Boys and Girls Club in the projects that I'm born and raised in Estrada Courts. And then I have uh, I Am College track at Roosevelt. And then I have a lot of young like uh, youth robotic leagues around Boyle Heights in East L.A. from starting at the age of nine. So because that's you got to start early. You know, you actually said something that I read about this where you said, when I started this, I committed to 10 years. And you mentioned why, because, you know, it had been mentioned to you, this is a 10-year commitment. And now you're at a point where you're releasing this video and this song and you're recommitting. Why put the song out now? Why not just continue? Why not just continue the good work? Why are we having this conversation at this point, at this milestone? There's just so much going on right now, you know, like we've lost the compass on the American dream. And then there's so many people fighting for that American dreams, like Stacey Abrams, like the American dream right there. And how Georgia came through to push for progress, equality, the American dream. But then what just happened right now in the, in the Capitol building, that's, that's like the opposite of, of like the American dream and not to take away their passion because they're obviously have something they're passionate about, but that's just the wrong way to go about handling your home. Right? Like we're Americans, we're supposed to like come together and, and, and find that bridge. So we, we're all, all right. Everyone, black, white, brown, rich, poor. And, and I, and I, and I see I, I don't understand how they can do that to our home. So if I was trying to figure out like a way to see it from that perspective, I just can't see like your capital, like the pinnacle of what America stands for 
outside and, you know, outside looking in and inside looking in. That's just a bad symbol. And, you know, optimism, progress, and togetherness is what we need to, the mindset we need to have. You know, it's going to be a rough 10 years. What do you think that those kind of scenes that unfolded, what kind of message do they send to the kind of kids that you're trying to reach, to the generation that you're trying to inspire? That Those kind of images send the message of the parents are no longer in control. You know, like imagine you're at home and your mom and dad aren't there. And you're being raised by your like wild next door neighbor. And everything's amok. And and yet you're still trying to get an education to progress and bring the excellent side of yourself out. Those types of images is that doesn't help, especially if you're if you're living in like conditions like inner city kids live in. The education part of I am angel, what you're trying to achieve and the path you're trying to help people find covers a lot of different ground. But, you know, I know that you're also passionate about technology and we've spoken about that in this conversation. You know, I was talking to this with a friend of mine just before we spoke and I was saying, you know, technology plays a significant role in this. Social media, whether it was intended to or not, has created an environment where misinformation can be spread really easily. And for people who aren't actually who don't, who don't know the difference between what is correct and what is false. It's just a matter of, it's just a matter of, of context and it's just a matter of opinion. Well, I believe that to be true. And I, I wonder kind of how the, you know, what has been happening in recent memory, not just in America, but all over the world, the way that the political landscape, the socioeconomic landscape, information is at the core of all of that information in the hands of people who, you know, I don't know whether they're, qualified to spread it it's uh the platform unregulated platforms when you spread information could be detrimental to the stability of society yeah and if you if you have a platform that is truly a publication but not regulated like publications then we have what we have right now so the technology is magnificent the the freedom and the liberty and the connective, how it connects us is awesome, but unregulated where I not only can understand you and all your trigger points, but I can send you designer information to inflame your emotions, to send you amok and like, you know, be at odds with your neighbor, be at odds with your fellow, like, you know, American or whatever nation you're because from. Because emotions, which subsequently to actions, emotions as has been written are a direct reflection of a, of an unwelcome thought, right? Of something that's attacking you that, 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 that creeps into your mind that tells you everything's not okay, creates an emotional reaction and then ultimately can lead to action. Right. And so all it takes is for these platforms or whatever people to use these platforms to plant that thought in someone's mind. And an emotion is never far away. Right. 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 Right now, technology has moved faster than, you know, governance. Yeah. Yes. Right, right now, like, right, just in the, just think about it, it's 10 years since the mobile internet unlocked and, you know, new types of apps and mobile apps, mobile companies, Uber, TikTok, 
uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, and these companies that build these social platforms, they don't have the same regulations as Time Magazine. They don't have the same regulations as the New York Post or CNN or Fox. And now the internet and social media is now dictating how media is supposed to behave. Now false, you know, false truths, fake news, that's now the norm. And that is detrimental. And that's why you need to like educate folks in inner cities and not even just inner cities, everywhere, especially inner cities, just the construct of the platform that we all trust. It's not a toy anymore. It's not, it's not a trend anymore. It's not a plaything. If you're not in the know of how detrimental these unchecked tools are to yourself, your clique, your community, your state, your nation, that could be the end. And so education is super, super important. And what I, I don't mean to say that very vaguely, that could be the end. We're watching the beginnings of, you know, collapse. You know, education and, and regulation, two key words there. And you're focused on education, but you're pro-regulation. I'm pro-regulation at the bare fundament at the fundamentals of protecting our civil liberties and protecting our the, the balance of society. With that, if, if if you're making technology for humanity, for society, and not for you know for your your shareholders, if you're making technology and you're a stakeholder, awesome. If you're making technology and it's only for your shareholders, and you're undermining you know, the stability of people and their livelihoods and, and, and how we all, you know, get along. And that's all bets are off. That's you got, you have to question like the intentions and the soul of these companies. Do you, I know that you, you spend a lot of time talking to people that, that have enormous influence based on the products that they make and distribute. And you're fascinated by progress. How much contact, how much communication do you have with, with the playmakers? Like I, I wrote a, I wrote a piece in the Economist two years ago, saying that uh, data is a human right, and I am my data. I'm not just my driver's license. I'm not just my, my passport number. I'm not my social security. I am my spell check. I am my searches. I am my location. I am my address book. I am my DMs. I am my picture. I am my data. That's what we all are. And if I don't own that. And it's up to the highest bidder to predict what my next move is going to be. Yeah, we speak out about that at, at WEF. There's like a committee of folks. There's a, a, lot, a lot of people doing awesome work to, to wave the flag so that, you know, we don't get taken advantage of by convenience. Right? None of us are really truly reading the fine print. Uh, and there's been some progress, like with data usage and data rights, but... Uh, this is just the beginning, right? Like any monarchy that abuses their power, a revolution happens. It happened in France. It happened in the UK. That's why America's America. And now there's new kingdoms. And we know what those kingdoms are. They're, they're data mining kingdoms that have more money and power, like I said, than any kingdoms in the past. But what I'm getting from the conversation we're having is that is that you you love the platform. You love... The innovation. It's the business model. Okay. The business model is inhumane. 
the business model, it, once we, we'll look back at 2000 and right now, we'll look back at this moment in time and we'll say that business model was inhumane. So we know why Brexit is Brexit. We know the manipulation of people's emotions based on immigration and how all that stuff was skewed. We know why that, now in hindsight, we know why that is. And we know how Donald Trump got elected by the manipulation of people's data and, 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 and all these different groups, you know, whether it was bots or, you know, hacks, we know how we got here. And since then, there has been no true massive transformation as far as their, their business model. People's data is still for sale, collect individually and collectively, mm-hmm. and that's inhumane. If a person doesn't know who has access to their stuff at any given time, uh, both you know, uh, for for mental health checkups by like you know foreign governments, all that stuff should be. How is how is that even like? Um, how can we have that? How can that be like right now? How can that be a thing? Who's checking them? Who's watching the watchers? Right? That's a, who's watching the watchers? So that's why tech education, STEM education is super, super important because we got here to a place because a a few were educated on, you know, the possibilities of, of these, of these technologies. Now we weren't all educated on them. And now that we are using them, it's very important that we get educated on them, especially the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable are those that are living in these at-risk conditions. So let me ask you this, because as long as I've known you enough to have conversations like this, I know, as I, and I said, again, I said before, you throw yourself into these scenarios, this futuristic environment with full courage. Because a lot of people, it's very scary when you're faced with the reality of what's around the corner and you throw yourself into a place where you absorb all the knowledge and then you do what you can to help and to try to prepare people and do your thing. Are there times when that, that knowledge, where what you learn, what you know, what you hear that the rest of the world doesn't get to hear on mass scares you where that knowledge is a burden, where it weighs heavy on your shoulders because perhaps you can't do enough and perhaps the future is, even more intense than we are aware of. I try not to let like hypothetical, plausible things put fear into my spirit because those hypothetical, plausible things are all creative ideas that somebody came up with. They just didn't think about how it affects people and the ethics around it. Right. That was just somebody really super excited, like, yo, let's do this but never pump the brakes like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. That way, your business model is going to affect people, right? And we all know the companies that have really messed up, humane, compromising business models. So these are the kind of things that scare me, like the, the no regulations on, on business practices. That's a scary part. So when you're dealing with like, you know, AI and machine learning, data, privacy, those things are scary. You know, I spoke, I've spoken to a few people who really are in this space who are like you. How deep do you want to go, Zane? 
<laughs> you know, I asked them, tell me about it. How deep do you want to go? And that's the, that is the single thing that, that continually comes up in conversation that raises their, their anxiety levels is, is what you just talked about, the idea of AI machine learning and such. And there's some companies that have awesome business practices and they have like a moral center and moral compass. And they do, they try their best to do right by people and communities. And we know those companies, Apple, thank you so much. Right. And then we know the other companies that's not fair to mention, cause it's going to take the conversation in a totally different way that we should be concerned about. Uh, and then there's the right now. And then how do you prepare people to build technology for people and communities knowing what we know and how do you encourage people to be like technologists with a human heart? How do you prepare people to be roboticists with a human heart and a soul and making robots to help humanity? Because it's inevitable. It's going to happen. I don't know if you can reverse it and undo it. It's inevitable. And maybe the reversal and undoing is further down the line, but it, it needs people from our community to be a part of the conversation. Right? It's like it's like it's 1920 right now. And there's people making electricity, there's people dabbling in you know machines and, and new types of factories, there's people dabbling in uh, airplanes and travel and uh, about to be with you know jet propulsion engine you know later on, but 1920 was very pinnacle to the third industrial revolution that got us here. It's full circle now. It's a fourth industrial revolution. And once again, black and brown is not a part of the conversation. Enough. If you walk into any room when it comes to innovation, when it comes to like these conversations, like when I'm at the World Economic Forum and those meetings, I'm one of the few that are part of those conversations because of the work that I do in AI um, and the teams that I build around the world to make sure that we're a part of the you know, training the machine and the algorithm towards kinder to us. And so uh, when, I, when I started the school, I realized that a lot of kids, they didn't see a path down the technical side because they didn't see anybody that looked like them, that came from their same community. So as a musician, if I'm telling kids like, yo, get involved in STEM, and they didn't, it's barely because I didn't get involved in STEM. They just see me as an entertainer. But when I show them my facility and the work that we're doing to show them that it's possible, we have a lot of what we see now at my school where kids are going to school for computer science and robotics and graduating and going to top, top colleges. Hmm. So the next 10 years is, is, is really, uh, really important for society, for communities like Boyle Heights, um, at-risk kids, and, and like I said, society as a whole. Like, what does all of this mean? What, what does 2030 look like? How do you participate in it? Who do you trust? These are all like really important questions. Trust is the, is the most important currency. Why? Okay, if this was 1920, when I took a step to go use the restroom, that wasn't a business. Uh, if this was 1920, if I ate uh, you know, papaya salad and flushed the toilet, that wasn't a business. If this was 1920, when I like, for those folks that are like, what are you talking about, Will I am? What do you mean steps? Yeah, counting of steps, calorie burn, location. That's business. 
everything you do, every move you make is, is creating some type of data that you don't benefit from, right? These companies know more about you than your mother, your father, your grandma, your religion, your government. They can predict behavior in ways that, you know, you should, you should be, we should all be concerned about. So that being said, what does 2030 look like? And what are they doing with that data? And who can you trust when they can predict you and if they give you freaking new types of experiences that keep you addicted only because they know how to predict you? So now prediction and addiction are married. If you were addicted to a drug, you were addicted to the drug, but the drug dealer couldn't predict you. <laughs> yeah. Now these like, you know, addictive platforms and coupled with prediction algorithms to keep you even more addicted. And so if you have like, you know, games for kids, the how who's raising them? When there's an AI guiding them to only keep them. And, how, and where's all that data going when they want to go get a job tomorrow? And why isn't our community a part of these conversations? Why isn't our community developing and, developing and saying, hey, 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 we shouldn't be doing that? That's not right. But because certain cultures have different things, now you're going to have like this, this wash of cultures and traditions that we've had that are now compromised because we weren't a part of these new raising engines, predictive engines that are 99.9% .9 accurate. How does one get through to their kids on a day-to-day -day level when you're up against the power of technology and this algorithmic state bleeding into this artificial intelligence future, which is there to try to preempt every single move? Like you talked about who's raising your kids. Like it's a fair question. It's man, it's a it's a it's a mountain to climb, even on a day-to-day -day basis when you take into account some of the things that you know your kids are getting involved in from gaming and everything else. It's crazy. So if you were, um, I'm not a parent, but imagine you're a parent if you're not already a parent and you have your babysitter taking care of your kids. I'm pretty sure you're going to interview the hell out of that babysitter. <laughs> you're going to psychoanalyze them. You're going to see their facial expressions, how they move. You're going to want to know everything about that person that's taking care of your kids. And now we have like these toys that have an eye and a brain. And those, that eye and that brain, that machine learning is connected to a business model. And if you don't understand how that system is working, then you are really just leaving your kids to be raised by a business model that compromises everything about you and how you want the best for your children. So wouldn't it, isn't it best that you teach your kids the same tools that they're utilizing and, 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 and immersing themselves in? Shouldn't they understand the environment that they're in technologically as they're playing every day to know like, hey, I know that I'm being monitored and watched. I know that. So let me use this less. Like if you knew that like people know the difference between crack and cigarettes. And if you smoke crack as much as you smoke cigarettes, you got a problem. And so you have to have the knowledge on the, the platforms that you're on because they're just that addictive and they're just that manipulative. If one day you figure out, if you look at your past self, like the way you used to think, 
has now been manipulated by what you're on. And we've seen ourselves be so like distant towards one another just in 2020. We've seen us like have harmful thoughts to people on, on threads and chat boards. And we think we're talking to people. Sometimes we're talking to a chat bot. And you don't even know if the chatbot is working you because it understands all your emotional pressure points only to get a rise out of you to keep you on it, to throw more ads about you. And then next thing you know, you're going to go to the doctor and have mental problems. You're going to have like, you know, anger management problems, things you never really had. But this agent that you've been in, engaging with on this platform has brought the worst out of you. Let's talk about this song now in the context of when you made it versus what's happened this week and and the ground shifts beneath our feet so fast will that when you made american dream you couldn't have possibly imagined that it would mean something today that it meant when you first recorded it it's heartbreaking you know it truly is heartbreaking then what i was thinking when i wrote the lyrics they're talking opportunity but they don't, they don't mean it for people like me. They be talking equality, but they don't mean it for people like me. They say opportunity, but I don't see none in my streets. Statistically, I'll be in a penitentiary. So I'm gonna get on that college track and go to an Ivy League. I was just thinking about like progress and contribution to society. And what do I, what do, if, I was, if I was 16 years old, 15 years old, and music wasn't the path, what would I be reaching for? Right? There's, there's a lot of kids that maybe they don't want to do music. Maybe they don't want to play sports. And they love technology. They love gaming, but they don't have anybody that looks like them. So let me, let me go down this college track path. Let me apply myself in these sciences. I was thinking about that, the simple like method to contribute. And then I see, you know, people storming the Capitol. And then I'm like, wow, now when I say the American dream, and there's an American nightmare happening right now, how are people going to take that sentiment? Like, are they going to take it? Because everyone's sensitive. Everyone's emotions are on edge. I hope they see the beauty in togetherness. I hope they see the beauty in open-mindedness. I hope people see the beauty of tolerance. I hope they see the beauty of collaboration. I hope they see the beauty of fusion, like black and brown. Like if you see, like there's going to be a lot of people that are going to look at that and be like, really, well, I am like, I see your school has a lot of Mexicans in it. But I can't help where I was born and raised. That's my neighborhood. And before I can move to somebody else's neighborhood, no matter what the nationality is, I got to take care of my neighborhood. And now that I've done that for 10 years, now I want to go to other neighborhoods. I want to go to neighborhoods that look like how I look like. Because my neighborhood doesn't look like me. My neighborhood looks like me in my heart and my spirit because that's how I was brought up and raised. And for 10 years, we've done a good job. And that, to me, is what the American dream is. I remember when Eric Dickerson came with Dickerson Rangers, and I would go to that 
football uh, summer camp, that changed my, my summers. That kept me safe. That kept me out of harm's way. That kept me off the streets. That kept me out, off the block. And, uh, and when we say the American dream, if we all could chip in and do that and take care of neighbors, whether they look like you or not, uh, whether they eat what you eat or not, whether they think how you think, that's an open mind, that's tolerance, and we need to collaborate better. Uh, and what I saw at the Capitol, that was not collaboration. That was frustration. That was like... Misinformation. and yeah, Misinformation, that was hate. What? Imagine if that was like a foreign nation coming into America. What? American did that? Americans did that to America. Like what? Yeah. How did we get here? And how, why isn't anybody held accountable? Imagine that was me and my students. What would have happened to us? Like I said, the majority of our students are Latin and black. What would, that, what would have happened to us if we stormed the Capitol building? We know what would have happened to us, um, but we, we're not storming the Capitol building. We're storming building capital, starting with capital of, of, of information and, and, and like purpose and dedication and discipline. And we all need that. We need a lot of that. Well, how can people get involved and help? Um, you know, I want to finish. I want to give people a chance to invest themselves in this in any capacity, even if it's just seeking more information. Where do people go? You could go to um, GoFundMe.com backslash I am Angel. A hundred percent of our kids graduate to go to uh, for, go off to four year colleges. Um, we have an I am Scholarship. We have an I am Robotics program in partnership with First Robotics. We provide safe pass safe passage for kids towards um, excellence and contributing to society. So if you can help me and my uh, mission and all of our partners like Lorraine Powell Jobs, uh, Ron Conway, thank you for all your support, Mark Benioff, um, whatever you could donate, a dollar, five dollars, a thousand, ten thousand dollars, whatever you could contribute to get to our goal so we could help kids for the next 10 years, mm-hmm. it will be highly appreciated. I always feel at the end of our conversations, a mix of feelings. I feel educated and enlightened. I feel excited. I always enjoy speaking with you. I, sometimes I feel a bit scared. I feel a little bit nervous about what's to come. It's, it's all wrapped up into one. And I've figured out over multiple times we've met and spoken that that's kind of how I should feel. <laughs> that's the normal reaction because, because I'm, you're downloading all of, the, all of what you know. But most importantly, you're actually turning it around. Rather than just downloading it, you're actually, you're actually sharing it with people and you're inspiring other people to prepare. And I, I applaud you for what you're doing with I Am Angel continually and what you've done with the song to generate attention and to create a moment so as to draw attention to it. And I'm, I'm so glad we had a conversation that hopefully has done just that. Yeah, I just also want to point out, like, the kids at my program, they're not just learning technology. There's also, there, there's also kids that are going to school for political science for uh, environmental science. We have awesome kids that are going to school for like um, criminal justice. You know, we, we, we have so many different, you know, curriculums for the kids to aim their stuff towards and mentors to guide them towards excellence. And, you know, the, the teachers are, are awesome. The, uh, the mentors are great. The support is awesome. And I'm really proud of, more importantly, of the kids. You know, I started off with 65 kids, like I said, like 50 to 60 kids. 
And now I, I we serve about 1,200 kids with a waiting list, and we want to we want to serve more, and and scale it and take it outside of Boyle Heights, you know. And and I, I've been doing this program for 10 years, not to do it so people know that I'm doing it, just to do it to have results. And now that you know it's a, it's a proven success, it's time for this next 10 years to take it, you know, to more areas that need it. Yeah. And that's the reason why raising raising more money is so that we could duplicate it yeah. and uh, spread it across America. It's a hit. And to quote to somebody who we both really <laughs> admire, what do you do when you have a hit? <laughs> yeah, you follow it up as you tour. <laughs> you throw everything on it. It's really good to see you, man. I'm, like I said at the top of our conversation, good to see you, I'm so glad this was the first conversation of 2021. I had a lot of conversations last year, including yourself, and I wanted to start this year with purpose. You've provided us with that. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I always love those conversations with Will. I am. I always walk away feeling inspired. I've learned things, but I've also learned what's possible. Hopefully you feel the same way. If you do rate the conversation, please feel free to add a comment. I do read them and we'll catch you next week with another conversation right here on the interview series.